Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Thursday, and we are joined by my colleague, Amanda Carpenter, who, who I think is pre-wound up for today's podcast. Would that, would that be a fair? <laughs> when, when am I not wound up? Well, I want to. I want to take well, a minute. No, when 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 we get into Ron DeSantis, Greg Abbott, and Christy Nome, I'm just predicting that you'll be you'll be sufficiently wound up. But, but let's let's. I just want to do some things first before we get into all of this. I I I almost feel this has been lost in the news cycle. This statement issued uh, from the Orange Versailles uh, by the former guy yesterday, targeting a police officer who was defending the Capitol on January 6th. I, I want to read this. Statement by Donald J. Trump, 45th President of the United States. I spoke to the wonderful mother and devoted husband of Ashley Babbitt, who was murdered at the hands of someone who should never have pulled the trigger of his gun. We know who he is. Okay, let me just stop right there. We know who he is. If that happened to the quote unquote other side, there would be riots all over America. And yet there are far more people represented by Ashley, uh, one of the January 6th rioters, who truly loved America than there are on the other side. The radical left haters cannot be allowed to get away with this. There must be justice, exclamation point. So Amanda... You know, look, I understand that people want to move on from from him, but this is truly remarkable. The former president of the United States clearly threatening a a police officer so much for the back the blue bullshit. Um, But also the way he's fully now embraced this counter narrative that transforms this rioter into a martyr who loves America. I mean, that is now 100 percent done and declares that the police officer who was defending the Capitol murdered her. Um, we know who he is, suggesting that it would be violence if there was the other side, and then demands justice, exclamation point. I haven't heard much from the police unions about this since that statement was released. Your thoughts? Uh, Well, number one, anyone that still continues to say that Donald Trump should be leader of the Republican Party should be asked to answer and defend this on the spot. Number one. Number two, when I see stuff like this, I return to sentiments expressed by Michael Fanone in that recent um, Mm -hmm. time cover story, because he said something that has kind of been in the back of my mind since Lafayette Square, um, but I had never heard anyone express, let alone a member of the police force. And what Fanone essentially said is he explained why this back the blue stuff is such a farce. It's because the Trump right backs the blue when they're beating up on the right people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Through Black Lives Matter, it was the Black Lives Matter protesters. They don't back when they're beating up on their own. Like this whole tough on crime thing. I mean, that just was, I had kind of thought it, but I just, I never heard it expressed so clearly. Like, Being tough on crime only works when you're shooting at the right people. But if you're shooting at one of our own, even when they're going into the Capitol, busting things, breaking police officers, you know, helmets, stealing their guns, threatening to use it against them. No, no, no. You can't do that. We don't back you anymore. And so... I mean, have you ever heard anyone express it so clearly? No, I, and, I, and, I, and I think that's hard to get around, particularly when you're, you think about 
the the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, the fact that uh, you know people were chanting, you know, hang Mike Pence, uh, they've been described as domestic terrorists. And, and now you have, um, you know, Mr. Law and Order embracing, the, you know, basically a domestic terrorist uh, claiming she truly loved America and throwing this police officer who was defending American democracy under the bus. It, it is really quite extraordinary when you think about it. And, and, I, and I know this is, you know, maybe too easy to play this game, but I'm just trying to remember that if Barack Obama, you know, from, imagine if Barack Obama had said anything like this about, um, you know, like a foreign terrorist uh, mm-hmm. or had attacked cops in this particular way, I, I, I just I can't even imagine uh, how many heads would have exploded on the on the on the right. He'd be impeached and convicted. Um, well, in the last, this is a kind of easy to miss because there's been so much that's been happening. I mean, isn't it strange? It's the middle of August. It's supposed to be the dog days. It's supposed to be the downtime. And it feels like we're back to the uh, the news cycle where everything is happening all at once. So it's easy to, to miss that in the last 48 hours, there's been this transformation, I think, or this shift in the politics of law and order. You have Donald Trump attacking the cops. Um, not to mention continuing the, what we're learning about the Department of Justice. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Um, but the whole defund the police thing, it took an interesting turn the other night. I'm, I'm sure you saw that. Uh, and I, I, I wanted to sort of just highlight it for a moment because that slogan, defund the police, became this rallying cry. And I agree with, with Connor Friedersdorf in The Atlantic that that was a disaster because it was, it was a political liability because of justified fears that if implemented, it would lead to more murders, assaults, other violent crimes, disproportionately hurting victims in America's most marginalized communities. Well, on Tuesday, in the middle of the night, we got this really vivid illustration of this political dynamic. Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville, during that uh, voterama, proposed an amendment uh, to withhold federal funds from localities that defund the police. <laughs> and he probably thought, well, I'm going to you know, embarrass the Democrats because they're going to vote to defund the police. Or they're going to vote against this. Well, Cory Booker, Democrat Cory Booker, the scariest black man in America, according to Donald Trump, um, leaps at this opportunity to distance Democrats from the defund movement. And let's just play this. This is Cory Booker, very sort of um, <laughs> yeah, I, would, I would say a rather animated speech on the floor of the Senate. President, Senator I'm, from New Jersey, I am so excited. <laughs> this is perhaps the highlight of this long and painful and torturous night. This is a gift. If it wasn't complete abdication of Senate procedures and, and, and esteem, I would walk over there and hug my colleague from Alabama. And I will tell you right now, <laughs> thank God, because there's some people who have said that they're members of this deliberative body that want to defund the police to my horror. And now this senator has given us the gift that finally, once and for all, we can put to bed this scurrilous accusation that somebody in this great esteemed body would want to defund the police. <laughs> so let all of us, a hundred people, not walk, but sashay down there and vote for this <laughs> amendment and put to rest the lies. And I am sure I will see no political ads attacking no. anybody here Nobody. over defund the police. And I would ask unanimous consent to add something else to this obvious bill. Can we add also that every senator here wants to defund the police, believes in God, country, and apple pie? Thank you. Okay. 
So, and then you know what happened? Every every senator present voted for it. It passed ninety nine to nothing. Every Democrat voted for it. So, you know, I'm just like singing in my head, sachet, yeah, sachet, work, coinbooker. <laughs> So it, something else happened too. So Josh Hawley thought that he was going to, you know, be clever, and so he he wanted to score points by offering an amendment to add a, a hundred thousand new cops to the streets. It didn't go the way he planned because, again, the Democrats said, "Hey, this is great. Um, in fact, um, this proposal that you're endorsing is the cops program that was created by Senator Joe Biden." And again, all the Democrats voted in favor of it. The pro cop amendment passed ninety five to three. <laughs> With all but one Democrat, Bernie Sanders, for some reason, um, voting voting yes. So the whole, you know, defund the police movement. OK, there are some probably some members of the of the House who are still going to be using it. But I mean, it it, it that was that was that was uh, that was kind of, you know, ending not with a bang, but with a whimper. Now. You could argue that those are just symbolic because these are non-binding resolutions, right? But uh, the the most vocal advocates uh, for actually defunding the police were very, very unhappy. And Black Lives Matter put out just indignant, angry uh, <laughs> tweets about how terrible it was. Every single Senate Democrat voted with Republicans. Um, Did they really? Yeah. So they're oh. no, no, and they 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 we need to fight back against this and all of this. But um, I mean, yeah. like. Congrats to Cory Booker, because yeah. the Trump people tried to make him the poster boy for the angry, scary black guy that was going to, you know, yeah. home, conduct home invasions in every sub- suburb in America. Like, I am so glad he got to have that moment and rub it in their faces. He deserved to have that moment. So uh, it's just too bad it probably happened in the middle of the night. <laughs> it Yeah, it did happen in the middle of the night. So just keep that in mind that at least I don't know, I can't speak for the the activist progressive uh, wing of the party, but uh, the political wing of the party, I think, has completely figured out that defund the police is a political loser. OK, so one last thing, update on law and order and the rule of law. Um, I have just been um, riveted by watching one Department of Justice official after another come up and testify in front of the Senate about the kinds of uh, pressure that that uh, Donald Trump put on them to uh, overturn the the election. And so here's the the former U.S. attorney in Georgia. His name is, I can't pronounce the first name. Do you know Byung Pak? Uh, I'm, I'm sure. Sorry, I, I, I apologize. But um, he, he resigned abruptly on January 4th and with no mm-hmm. explanation, the U.S. attorney uh, from, um, from Georgia. And n- n- he testified yesterday that Trump was going to fire him for refusing to back up Trump's false claims, uh, including on that call with Raffensperger, um, a voter fraud. So uh, they basically said he's obsessed about all of this. You're not prepared to lie about this. Um, He's going to fire you. And so he resigned on January 4th, two days before the insurrection. And this comes after the testimony from uh, Acting Attorney General Rosen, that also talks about the repeated attempts to force the DOJ to help him with his coup, including just lying about whether there was voter fraud. It's really an extraordinary story, isn't it? I mean, yes, I'm glad, of course, he's talking to people now. But where were you during the second impeachment? Mm-hmm. You know, like this would have been relevant in information. And I understand that. The Democrats decided not to call witnesses in the end, which still to this day, I will never, ever, ever, ever understand. 
But even if he thought he didn't have a pathway to go well, forward and testify. Didn't Republicans vote against having witnesses? Wasn't it the Republicans? Yeah, but there was a deal at the very end where they could have gotten witnesses. And I, Chris Coons, like famously, the aides told Politico that they wanted to get home in time for Valentine's Day. So they uh, struck an agreement to get that statement from Jamie Herrera Butler, um, you know, testifying that she heard from Kevin McCarthy that she talked to John. I don't totally remember the exact details of it. And so they just called it good and said, let's get this over with. But but the fault I have is with people like PAC who had information. And I understand that they didn't have the legal pathway that they do now because Department of Justice said they can testify and Trump would have invoked executive privilege. But how hard would it have been to write a statement saying, I have relevant information? Yeah. And if, if there's a way for me to provide it, I will. And it is relevant to this impeachment. It's relevant to the American people. I mean, Donald Trump had a free pass to keep raising how many millions of dollars off these election lines. And all these people are sitting on this information. And you, he's a U.S. attorney. I mean, you know what the stakes of this are. And so I'm not ready to say like, oh, isn't this wonderful? It would have been wonderful on January 4th. You take a couple of weeks to think about it. You see Trump is getting impeached to say, I have information. I mean, John Bolton essentially did the same thing. And of course, you know, he went and wrote a book about it later and he wasn't called to testify. But if there were actual people in the Justice Department saying, yeah, I saw some stuff. I don't know if I can talk about it, but I have information that I wish you would have when you consider this going forward. That's what I wish they would have done because this is, I, it, it speaks to the importance of having a select January 6th committee to finish the work, but I, I, I'm not giving gold medals to any of these no, guys. No, I, and I agree, and, but it, I guess I'd look at it the other way around that, um, yes, they, they should have come forward, but also how awful this record is right now. And, and, you know, Ryan Goodman tweeted out, this is mounting evidence of Trump's criminal intent under federal and Georgia state law. And I've been very skeptical of this, but I do think that you're getting a picture of a president of the United States who clearly, um, who we know had engaged in obstruction of justice in the past, uh, who uh, did have criminal intent to, uh, turn, uh, to overturn this election, which raises the question, I know this is completely speculative, and and you you made the point that that all of this stuff cumulatively you know should uh, should disqualify Donald Trump from being the leader of the Republican Party. No kidding. But <laughs> let let's just use our imaginations about a second Trump term. That if Trump comes back and is reelected, is elected in twenty twenty four, who would be his attorney general? Knowing everything we know now about the Department of Justice and the way that he was undermining the rule of law, <laughs> who would accept that job? Doug and, Collins. Exactly. Well, somebody like that, right? And then the question would be, would the Senate confirm that person and would the Department of Justice accept that person? I'm going to imagine who- I can't. What, I can't what, even start what, this. <laughs> well, I know. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying that- at some point, we need to think through the implications of this, because as of right now, you and I both know if Donald Trump wants that nomination, he's got it right. And um, imagine what a second term would be uh, now that he's figured out what he needs to do and the kinds of people that he needs to have. And I, I look, of course, I mean, are there you know people with no conscience whatsoever, you know, complete hacks, you know, the Doug Collins types of the world, the Matt Gates of the world? Yeah. Ted Cruz would go be his AG. Why not? He would accept it. He would accept it. He would We have another round of new people saying, I can help. We've learned from the mistakes. He gets it now. I can be there to be the guardrails. And it'll just be 
round two of this with lower caliber people than we started with for the yeah. first term. Yeah. Speaking of lower caliber people, I, I admit I'm somewhat obsessed by this uh, the story of uh, Rand Paul. It turns out that his uh, he's, <laughs> he's, he's now disclosed belatedly that his wife had invested $15,000 in uh, this company. And the reason it obsesses me is that this company that made this 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 antiviral drug that people had touted as as cure for the coronavirus, which is not. But, but what I think is fascinating is that the name of the company is Gilead Sciences. I'm Why? sorry, this is Gilead Sciences. You, I mean, you. I don't know. You're probably not a a Handmaid's Tale. Uh, viewer I watched or like three episodes, and it seemed like masochistic. I'm kind of. Right? I just I'm, couldn't handle I'm, it. I'm, the first I'm, episode I'm, I liked. I, but it's just like, sure, that's yeah, exactly. He's of course he's going to invest in something called Gilead Services. Stop. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about masks, vaccines, Ron DeSantis, um, and compassion fatigue. Mm. Um, compassion fatigue is is not a new concept. Did, did you heard that phrase before? When? Yeah, I first heard it um, with the CNN segment when they were interviewing a nurse. Uh, from Arkansas named Sunny, who was talking about how horrible it was that, you know, she was going to work every day. And meanwhile, she'd come home and everybody is saying like COVID is fake and in the hospital room being accused of killing patients when they died from COVID. And she's just talking about how stressful and horrible it was for nurses and doctors specifically. And she kind of threw out the term, a lot of us have compassion fatigue. And I was like, oh, oh, that's, that's not good. No, well, it's right. and, and it's a and it's a real thing. Now, now, listen. If you would have heard the phrase, if you'd if you'd read my book, The Nation of Victims, that I wrote back in 1992 when you were in kindergarten, <laughs> because in chapter one there's an entire section called compassion fatigue. Oh, how, nice. How how a society in which everybody's claiming to be a victim. People will throw up their hands, go, well, then no one's a victim. I'm just going to stop doing it. We've just drained the ocean of, of human compassion. But let's talk about this because when you talk about compassion fatigue, I really do sense that there is just a growing just sense of just complete frustration, w w both with the unvaccinated and with the politicians who have decided to be their they're facilitators. I mean, it's one thing for Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott and Christy Nome not to necessarily want to beat the drums of a vaccine. I, actually, they have. They they have been. Um, at, le at least DeSantis has come out in favor of vaccination. But then they are aggressively using their power to stop other folks from imposing these mandates, school districts from having mask mandates, cruise uh, ship companies from having vaccine requirements. Just talk to me a little bit about DeSantis, because DeSantis is, you know, both of them, uh, DeSantis and Abbott, in the face of this overwhelming surge, hospitals overwhelmed, they need to beg the federal government for ventilators. And these guys aren't budging from their, we're going to demagogue this issue and we're going to raise money off, uh, you know, anti-vax sentiment. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about DeSantis from a political perspective first. Okay. Because- we all know, and it's weird why this is, if Donald Trump doesn't get the nomination, it's DeSantis, right? right? Like everyone has lined up their chips behind him. He is the guy. He knows it. He saw the reception he got at CPAC. He's going all around the country raising money. You know, he's getting the treatment. He's getting the glow. He felt the spotlight and he liked it a lot. 
And he knows if he can play to these, you know, anti-vaccine sentiments, pro-freedom, anti-mask, anti-Fauci, he's got it in the bag. But he's got to keep the MAGA media audience lined up behind him to sustain it. Like that, that is a must do. He must keep that base behind him. And now I think he's choking. I think he choked hard this week. Because he was going against the schools and saying, you're not going to do mass mandates. You know, I might defund the superintendents. I might defund the schools if you don't do as I say. And a couple of them gave him the middle finger and he can't do anything about it. He can't do anything about it. He is hearing from doctors. He is hearing from companies. He's hearing the same thing everybody else is hearing. All the other Republican governors who are begging people to get the vaccine and do the right thing, he's hearing the same things. He can read the hotspot maps in Florida, and I think he's choking because he can't cave on this position that he took, and he can't do the right thing. He's stuck. And the reason why all the MAGA media people are so lockstep behind him and coming down on anybody that criticizes him is because they know if DeSantis falls off that pedestal, they don't have anybody. There's no backup plan. Let me read you from the uh, the Washington Post this morning. Republicans risk becoming the face of Delta surges. Key GOP governors oppose anti-COVID measures. In Texas, Governor Greg Abbott has banned local governments from implementing mask requirements, even as he pleads for emergency medical help in combating a surge in coronavirus uh, cases from the Delta variant in South Dakota. Governor Kristi Noem welcomed hundreds of thousands of revelers to the Sturgis motorcycle rally that last year bore characteristics of a super spreader event for the virus. And in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis, we've just been talking about him, is waging war on school districts seeking to defy his executive order prohibiting mask mandates for students while the state sees its rates of hospitalization from COVID surge past the worst levels of 2020. The three Republican governors, all frequently mentioned as potential presidential candidates in 2024, are at the vanguard of GOP resistance to public health mandates aimed at stemming the tide of the Delta variant, which has caused a new spike in coronavirus cases as the country attempts to reopen schools, restaurants, and other businesses. So, oof. Uh, But I, I think you're right. I think they are stuck in part because in this political world, you can never apologize. You can never admit you're wrong. You're always supposed to be fighting, right? And you can't actually defy the base. And the base is still in the freedom, you can't tell me what to do with my body mode. Uh, but it's not but, a good but look. But that's the it's base for look. a 2024 contest. Yeah. Because there are other Republican governors who aren't doing this. You guys know I live in West Virginia. We've got Big Jim Justice, Democrat turned, you know, kind of Trumpy adjacent Republican. The the are we the most Trumpy state in the union? Yes. But is Jim Justice doing any of this? No. He's begging people to get vaccines. He's auctioning off uh guns, <laughs> trucks. Yeah. Hunting and fishing license, asking people to go, doing press conferences every week, saying, please don't risk your life on this. They're, they're not doing this. Spencer Cox in Utah is not doing this. You know, Kay Ivey isn't doing this. DeSantis and Abbott and Noam are the outliers. And, you know, sure, like a DeWine might play footsie or something. Mike DeWine this, from but, Ohio, but, yeah. Yes, correct. And also a very Trumpy state. So this is only a litmus test for 2024 potentially 
uh, presidential base voters. Okay, I mean, they're playing is- such a long, weird game. And I just think it's important. Yes, although they have the attention and favor of a certain MAGA media Republican primary voter, they're not representative of what all the Republican governors are doing. So this is really interesting because, you know, you mentioned some other Republican governors like Mike DeWine from Ohio, which is kind of a Trumpy state. And, you know, he's not he's not demagoguing this way. Um, you know, Governor Cox from 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 Utah, uh, Governor Justice from West Virginia. And yet what's interesting, and I know I was listening to um, the Next Level podcast that is available to Bulwark Plus members. And I know that uh, that Tim Miller was was talking about this. And Tim made a very, very interesting point that right now the conservative media has decided that they are all in on pro-DeSantis or they're anti-anti-DeSantis because, and even people who had been skeptical about Trump, that anyone who is one inch to the right of where we are right now is going to come down on you like a ton of bricks if you question Ron DeSantis because they've decided that he's the guy. And, and you know, and I'm talking to you, it, it, it occurs to me that, I mean, that's true, but also if there are people out there that want to have a post-Trump conservative movement or Republican Party, why are they not talking about, you know, Governor Cox? Why are they not talking about Mike DeWine? Why are they not talking about Governor Justice? You know, and it, it shows kind of just the weirdness here, because if you're a Republican, you want to say this is not us. You actually have governors you can point to. And yet, if you go on social media and look at uh, at red right wing uh, Twitter, or you read the publications, whether it's National Review or Washington Examiner, it is all in dug in that it's you know pro Ron DeSantis, yay yay yay. Yeah, and I can't even believe I didn't even uh, think to mention Larry Hogan. Larry Hogan, right? Yes. It, because Randis, Ron DeSantis is playing the game. He's playing the game. He's sucked up to Hannity. He's lined up the people behind him. Everyone has looked at him as the one who can make the Trump. Trump, Trump work again. No one else can. No one else is playing the game. No one else wants to. Although, you know, I'm very curious because I have yet to see Ron DeSantis put on the spot about Donald Trump's election lies in January 6th. I'm waiting for that day, waiting okay. for him to get crushed on that question. Okay, let's brush the politicians aside for a moment. And let's just talk about the the unvaccinated, the unvaccinated who right now um, are putting at risk the return to school, putting at risk um, our ability to uh, reach reach herd immunity, um, and who, when they get sick, are clogging up our hospitals. It's interesting that uh, that the anti-science, anti-vaxxers are anti-science up until the moment they contract the coronavirus. And then, of course, they actually do go to hospitals, which practice science. But as a result of that, uh, other people who have um, not been so reckless and irresponsible are being pushed out of these hospitals. And there are stories, I, I know that you two, tweeted, you know, the complaints of one gentleman who's, um, was it his wife or his mother? I, uh, can't remember. I'm not, not but, sure. Well, well, anyway, she was, you know, oh, told his wife, had, the video. Yeah, 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 yeah. She, she had to leave the, the, the hospital because they needed room for all the people who had come down with COVID, 99% of whom were unvaccinated. So I guess the question is, and you asked this question on the bulwark or in your article. So who should we have compassion for? I mean, I want to be compassionate for everyone who is sick. I do not want to be the guy that, you know, implies that there's some sort of, you know, great karma going on here. But um, who should we have compassion for? And I'm going to quote you now, the people who wind up in ER after refusing to get vaccinated or the healthcare workers working around the clock to save their lives. Should we feel compassion for the hurt feelings of the anti-vaxxers who feel looked down upon 
or the children being hospitalized because a preventable pandemic is raging out of control again. In a perfect world, we'd feel compassion for all of them. Every life is precious, but it's been a long 18 months with a lot of tragedy and we are only human. We are at the point, past it really, where compassion is becoming a finite resource. I think that that is, put your finger exactly on the mood of the country right now. We know many of us put our heads down and say, we're going to do what we have to do. But, but right now, I have to say that I have moments of just incandescent rage about the people who are fucking it all up. Yeah. I mean, I, it just occurred to me the other day, this is my second summer on lockdown with kids who yeah. should be having a wonderful summer. There's no camp. There's no like childcare. There's no like big play dates unless maybe it's outside at a park or a pool. And I know people aren't going to be inside and sharing food and things like that. This is the second summer on high alert of juggling a job, kids, and a pandemic. And so, you know, for the first six months, it's like, okay, let's do our part. Let's get through this. You know, you kind of get some energy up, but I'm out. I am flipping out. And a lot of it probably has to do with the fact that going into the summer, we had the big celebration, take the masks off. And now because people did not get vaccinated, I'm going to have to tell my kids to put that stupid mask Mm. back on in order to go to school, if they're lucky enough to go to school. And then there's still all the rules. Even going back to school with Matt, that's not a normal school because they take everything else away. Like there's no field trips. There's no outside. There's so many other outside activities that don't happen because of the masks and the other rules. I mean, they haven't seen their classmates' faces in a year. How screwed up is that? How screwed up is that? And I'm saying we've got to do that. I'm not with the people who are saying like, oh, take the masks off. The kids are fine. You guys aren't scientists. Who, are you listening to the doctors? Have you looked at the long-term lung damage that could be associated with long-haul COVID? I mean, it's just crazy to me. But they say, you know, it's just this big divide for the second year in a row. And it's because of adults. It's because of adults. And once again, kids are paying the price. I'm also frustrated. I mean, I'm, I'm frustrated by the politicians. I'm frustrated by the people who've decided that they're not going to do it and because the, the, the cost of this is so great. And, and by the way, this, this line out there, you know, from people like Patrick Ruffini, well, well, why should you even care if you're vaccinated? Why should you care if other people don't? Well, because not everybody is vaccinated. There are children who are unvaccinated, who are vulnerable. And plus, um, they are this massive Petri dish that will incubate the next variant. So what a stupid argument. But I'm also, man, I'm also frustrated with the... Um, with the federal government a little bit on this, what what is taking so freaking long to approve the vaccine to not just as an emergency use, but to approve it and to approve its use for children? And the reason I'm mentioning that is because, you know, vaccinations and immuni- you know, immunizations are not unusual for school kids at all. You know this. You're a mom. You can't go to school unless you've been immunized for all sorts of things that are that do not actually pose a real imminent danger. Why can't we just acknowledge the reality, approve the vaccines, take away that one excuse, and then, having taken away the excuse, mandate it for everybody in schools, like we do with all of the other vaccines and immunizations? Yeah, sometimes I wonder, would this just be cleaner if we just say no school is coming back until the vaccine is approved for kids? 
Let's yeah. just get the fight over it. And I hear this from other parents who are concerned like me that aren't on the, well, let's just throw the kids in the peachy gist and see who dies. Cross your fingers. Not on that train. But they say, you know what? I'm just holding out to get my kids vaccinated. After that, I won't care. I, I, don't, I don't care what happens to everybody else. At that point, I can say, take your own risk. But as long as my kids are at risk, I have to care. After we get that done, we can have the conversation about saying, do what you want, freedom, whatever. But until then, we're, we're just stuck. Families are stuck. And I can't, like, we don't, we started this conversation with the nurses and the doctors. What kind of jerk do you have to be to put the medical community through this again? Yeah. How many, I looked up the stats, we had 3,600 healthcare workers die as a result of the pandemic. Like, how cruel of a person are you to do that to doctors and nurses again? I mean, we all saw the videos of these nurses working 14-hour shifts, not being able to see their own families. I read one account about some nurse actually lived in an RV so she could keep her family safe through the last year, but still go to work. Why would you put them through that? Like, everybody has, you might not have a doctor in your family, but you know a nurse, Right. Like it's a pretty big industry. And it's the same thing for teachers. Why would you put teachers through that? They can get the vaccine. But now with Delta, they're at risk. Like, you you know, a teacher, you've had at least 20 or 30 teachers in your lifetime. How can you be so cruel to them? I think it's indifference. And I do think that when it comes to the the healthcare system, you could break some of these systems because there are a lot of folks who could say, I just can't take this anymore. I'm not going to do it. Uh, It's not just the short term overwhelming like we're seeing in Mississippi, where the Mm -hmm. entire system is breaking down because it's it's overwhelmed. It's that long term. People go, "I, I can't do this anymore. I can't put myself and my family through this. Um, just, and a related issue here. I just find it close to insane that we have not yet had mandates for healthcare workers to be vaccinated. Mm-hmm. I, I, I you know, read an article the other day about the number of uh, people who worked at nursing homes, which, of course, were the big hotspots for the coronavirus, uh, the number of workers who were not vaccinated. Are you kidding me? You run a nursing home. How do you allow anyone in that nursing home who has not been vaccinated? If you run a hospital, how how, how is it not a reasonable thing to say that you're going to be around vulnerable people, people with pre-existing conditions, people with compromised immune systems? Of course, you have to be vaccinated. And I think it's a sign of the really the recklessness and the insanity of some of these politicians that are pushing back against uh, healthcare systems doing the right thing for their patients and for their employees. And we're seeing that even in Wisconsin, which has become increasingly insane. So yeah, that I also don't know. goes for at home healthcare workers. I, yes. have, I, know, I know a couple of right. people who have experience with that. And, you know, they have, you know, sign up for a system and somebody comes and you get to know like three or four of the people that come by and there's no requirements. I, you know, I have a friend who's like, I had to like put, ask my person to take the day. I'll pay them to go take an Uber, go get vaccinated and come back in four weeks. Like people are doing it themselves. It's just like, if you work in the healthcare industry, especially, especially going into people's homes to care for the elderly, not just at nursing homes, um, it, it's, it's just such a huge problem. It is a huge problem. Uh, you know, we mentioned before uh, the, the the podcast, uh, the Next Level Podcast, and I think that some of the listeners of this program know that there are other podcasts that we have. Uh, of course, um, Mona Charon's Outstanding Beg to Differ. Uh, but Bulwark Plus members have access to those podcasts, the so-called Secret Podcast, the Next Level Podcast, our Thursday night live stream, which, and again, it is Thursday, and we are going to, this week, we're going to be doing the mail 
mailbag. Uh, people who have sent in questions, Bulwark Plus members who sent in questions in the panel will be doing that. Um, and of course, uh, Bulwark Plus members get our newsletters. Um, every every single newsletter get the uh, my morning shots, the Triad newsletter, and I think also. I guess, uh, Amanda, you know, the whole point of Bulwark Plus is to be part of a community to enable us to continue to do this because, you know, it, it and I, I think I think listeners will understand this when I say this, that sometimes it can feel kind of lonely to be out here in this world as a political orphan, uh, to be watching what's going on here. And we really do try to be an oasis of sanity, of common sense. Um, and we are been devoted to telling people what we actually think. We are not tribal. We don't have a party line necessarily. And we want to keep this going. And so if you have not had a chance yet to join Bulwark Plus, please do. And on top of that, as you know, Amanda, there's now merchandise. You can get, <laughs> you can actually get Bulwark t-shirts i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna get some of the stuff for the uh, the grandkids and the dogs i don't know are you are you going for the t-shirts the hoodies oh yeah i like the the tie-dye t-shirt yes i have the tie-dye t-shirt coming a navy hoodie which i had to ask specifically for because ben had ordered a white hoodie which i can't keep white clean a black hoodie which is too just too harsh Uh, so there's a pretty navy hoodie courtesy of me and ben and there, but there is a pretty slick black and red hat, which feels like very incognito. Like you'd have to know what it is to know what it is. So I, I like that. I think I'm also probably going to get a mug, at least a mug. I, I I collect these mugs, so you can do that. But I just this is just my my sauce cell for people to uh, to join Bulwark Plus. Um, when, when we started this back in, uh, in in 2019, we had very very modest expectations. Uh, and uh, frankly, did not expect that we would become what we have become. Um, but that, what that shows is, I think that people are hungry for the, for that kind of a dialogue, and that there is there is in fact a marketplace for you know center right, center left uh, commentary, which again seems kind of extraordinary in an age in which um, the conventional wisdom is that you have to be the loudest voice, the most extreme voice, and obsessed with uh, clickbait. Okay, so Amanda, I, I, I hesitate to shift to this because I, I kind of know what the emotional temperature now is going to happen to the podcast. Let's talk about <laughs> inf- infrastructure. And, you know, everybody yeah. went, okay, oh, come on. See, we are had, we had a, a trillion dollar bill pass, extraordinary <sighs> moment of bipartisanship. The Democrats moving ahead with this massive monster bill. And my guess is that most people are going, yeah, this is good, but um, – you know, it's it. This is this is not the hottest topic of the day. So, first of all, how surprised were you that nineteen Republican senators voted for Joe Biden's bill? Because not I very, not very. Listen, they I always am. find ways to spend money. Like this, there was so much drama associated with this, which I thought. Honestly, I think it was kind of manufactured to be like, "Oh, let's give Biden some attention because he doesn't give that much attention." Like, of course, they were going to find ways to spend money. I am not shocked by this. Mitch McConnell voted for it. Why? Because they like to spend money. Yeah. Sorry. But, yeah, but still, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to find a single pundit that thought there would be this many Republicans. Is, is it significant that 19 Republicans ignored the orange god king who was telling them not to do it, that they were rhinos, that he was going to threaten them with, uh, with, with primaries? I mean, should no, we No, there's read only anything? one of them, I think, that's up for election this yeah. cycle. 
Well, I also think it's interesting watching the conservative media, which usually can, you know, whip the whip the base up. Um, they just never, never got the momentum because this is not the id of the Republican Party. The issues like spending and, uh, you know, the size of, of government, they just don't care as deeply about these issues. And also, I, I, I do think people need to understand that you know, Republicans are able to defy Donald Trump on stuff he doesn't really care about that much. And anything involving actual public policy, he doesn't really care that much about. What he cares about is personal loyalty, uh, supporting the big lie, all of that. They know they can survive voting for a trillion dollar bill despite that, as long as they don't say that the election was was free, fair and uh, and secure, right? I think that's right. And they'll probably get you know, excited to rail against the Democrat reconciliation bill um, is just a normal partisan kind of fight. But I just, if Biden thinks that this is going to impress people on the Republican side come 2022, 2024, I, I just think they're wrong. Like, okay, he checked the box, did his bipartisan bill. If he needed to do this to keep his base together and make Democrats happy, I totally understand that. But Charlie, there's been, you know, this has been a gripe of mine. There's been so much money flushing through this system, $5 trillion already between Trump and Biden when it comes to COVID rescue family, like whatever, like who even knows what's in this stuff? They haven't even, they didn't even message the fact that they were dumping free money into people's checking accounts and with this like child tax care credit thing, which isn't even a tax care credit. It's just a direct payment. Like, they didn't even message that right until the week money was dumped into checking accounts. Like, they're passing all this stuff and nobody knows what's in it. Uh, I don't think they're going to get credit for it. And I am just kind of confused by it. I, To, to be well, quite honest with you, I, I don't, everyone's going to be mad at me, but it's roads and bridges. Like, people expect that to work. You don't get a special gold sticker because you paved the road. Sorry. So how much money has it been? Because I, I remember you had tallied it up earlier this year when that first big bill, which I've now forgotten about, um, was, was, was passed. It was like $5 trillion of, of spending. It's got to be now closer to like $7 trillion in new spending. And they're pushing another $3 trillion. I mean, what are we looking at here? I, I, because, right? We don't even know how many trillion it is. Like, it, it is out of control. It is out of control. Okay. <laughs> Well, I, I, this is where I actually find myself very close to where Joe Manchin is on all this, saying, hey, there's there's some good stuff in this bill, but um, folks, uh, we need to be looking at inflation. We need to understand that you can't keep spending money at this rate. Now, the answer, what some of the Democrats are saying in response is, okay, it won't be inflationary because it will be paid for. Um, you and I have been around long enough to know that every time there's one of these massive omnibus, cromnibus spending bills, they always say it's going to be paid for, and it never is. <laughs> so no. that's that's my concern, is that they, they, they fudge the numbers. I also think that the political downside is, and you and I both know how this game is played as well, because we probably played it, um, what's going to happen is the people will go into these bills and they will cherry pick and find the various boondoggles, uh, the, the pork plans, the the questionable spending plans, because there, there's so much money that you know that there's a lot of, you know, cr- craptacular mm-hmm. elements that have just been shoved in there and th- that will come out over time. And each one of those becomes a talking point. So, um 
it will be interesting to see how the messaging on this this plays out. Not to mention this weird civil war that's broken out in the house um, in the in the House Democratic Caucus between the moderates and the progressives. And maybe that's just kabuki dance, but. I have a hard time believing that Republic, uh, the Democrats would be so stupid as to, uh, you, you know, torpedo Biden's agenda uh, simply because they, they they can't get, you know, AOC and, uh, you know, and Abigail Spanberger, for example, in the same room on the same page. Yeah, I guess, you know, my focus you know, as a Republican who voted for Biden and I think other Republicans who look to him for leadership only really need two things from him. Get us out of the pandemic beat the pandemic, crush that thing, get us back to normal, get the economy back. And then also save to save and protect democracy. Like those are the two things that need to happen. Those yeah. things aren't happening. I'm starting to get worried. And so beat Democrats, congratulations, whoopie do on your infrastructure bill. You, you're not delivering for these Republicans who cross the aisle to try to save this dang country. If anybody cares, maybe he, not. I mean, I'm not looking for any special treatment. Well, I think the, the, I the election democracy issue, uh, you know, I'm I'm a little bit frustrated about that because I, I do understand the focus on um, access to the ballot box. But I think the much larger question is who counts what comes out of the ballot box. And, and mm -hmm. a lot of this legislation doesn't focus on the real problem that we faced on January 6th, which is the will the willingness of folks to use legislative power to overturn the will of the voters. And, you know, unless you address that problem, the counting of the voters votes. Um, things like, for example, the Electoral College Vote Act, which is like a total mess from the 1870s. Unless you deal with that, then a lot of this other stuff is just sort of fiddling while Rome burns. Okay, one last one last topic in the time we have left. Um, Afghanistan looks like it is going mm -hmm. to be a bigger disaster than, than many people anticipated. There are voices out there who warned that this would be a humanitarian disaster, that would be a collapse. Um, the Biden folks, I think we're hoping that it would be more restrained. Um, everything that is coming out of Afghanistan, it ranges from terrible to horrible. So your thoughts on that? It's so saddening. It's so saddening. I don't I don't know. And yet we couldn't stay there forever, do. could we? I mean, I'm, I'm torn, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm torn on this. Yeah, I'm torn on it, too, because I, I don't want to be there forever at the same time. You don't want to lose the gains you made. And it's happening so quickly. I mean, the the worst is happening so quickly. I guess and the Biden could just go in there and get get as many people as we can out and carpet bond the place and cross your fingers. Is that the plan? I don't I mean, think. Kinda, I don't think there is a plan at this point. I really, I really don't think there's. Do you see the the uh, uh, the, the tweets from the American embassy? Uh, in Kabul, it says that they're getting reports of members of the Afghan military being uh, summarily executed by the Taliban. And the tweet is, says something like, well, if true, this would constitute a war crime. Well, OK, it's either true or it's not. If it's not true, you shouldn't be tweeting it. If it is true, clearly it is a war crime. But I think the worst part of it is that it, it sort of looks like the United States is now just sitting on the sidelines and like, you know, tutting and like this is really really bad we're gonna you know put out some more harshly worded tweets but that's it that's that's our role from now on and i, can, yeah, I, I can't i can't say that's terribly inspiring yeah i caught a clip from jen Psaki, who i admire and like a lot but kind of saying well the taliban needs to decide how they're going to participate in world government or as a world presence or something something to that effect and it's just like <sighs> what yeah really like you're we're that's where we are yeah this 
we we need to talk more about this. Not today, we, but yeah, we need to spend a lot more time on this. But uh, again, here we are in the middle of August, and uh, think things are happening at every single level. And I'm really grateful that you were able to make the time to come on the podcast today, Amanda. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.